All right, 1 Samuel, did you find your way back there a minute ago? Don read to us in this book. We're going to spend a few weeks in the first few chapters of this book in the earlier days of Samuel. I think it'll be a profitable study for us right now. As a matter of fact, as I was thinking, next week is Mother's Day. There's six weeks between Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, and uh, then this week also. So that'll make about right uh, for us to go through these early chapters, and there's a lot to, to say uh, to mothers and to fathers and to children because of the people and all that are contained in this story. So I think it will be a good thing. Often the Bible gives us a glimpse of uh, Israelite life, what it was like to be an Israelite in those days. Uh, we, we have the battles and we have the killings and those kinds of things, but sometimes we also just have the peaceful life that happened uh, to the average person uh, in, uh, in those times, and it's good for us. Not long before this, there was Manoah and his wife who had a son named Samson, and you remember the story of how the angel came and, and spoke to them about what they were supposed to do. Uh, as a matter of fact, just before this, in your Bible, you see the end of the book of Ruth. Uh, so the, the story of Ruth is, is, uh, t- takes place about this time, and you have Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and their life and uh, the things that happened there. Not long after this, you'll have Jesse and his wife, the house of Jesse, and of course his son David and how Samuel goes to uh, Jesse's house and anoints David as king. And yet, this was about 1100 or so B.C., so even at this time, things were largely in disarray in the nation as a whole. Joshua had brought them into the land, and now for a few hundred years, they had gone through wars, conquering the land, but... uh, Uh, There was no central government. Uh, There's the tabernacle still in Shiloh, as we see here in our story, but uh, not in Jerusalem. There's no temple yet. Uh, There's no king uh, or priest yet. Uh, Eli is the closest thing that they have to a priest. And there are enemies all around. Uh, The Philistines, especially during Samson's time and Samuel's time uh, into David's time. Uh, So... A lot going on, and if you, if you go just back before the book of Ruth to the last verse of the book of Judges, you have that final statement which says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that is kind of what was going on uh, at this time. Now, a man named Eli, we have him uh, named in verse 3, and his two wicked sons, was the last of the judges except for Samuel. Samuel will be somewhat of a judge. And, and then that will be all, and then we'll have King Saul and King David and all the kings of Israel. Uh, but he's the last of the judges. Uh, Eli was an old man even as our story opens. As a matter of fact, we're told in the next few chapters that he judged Israel for 40 years. So he had a, a nice long tenure. But he died when he was 98 years old. And these men judged up until their death, which means he didn't become the judge until almost 60 years old. Uh, So he judged Israel in these last years of his life. And maybe because he was older, maybe because uh, he didn't have the the strength that he had in his younger years, his two sons, also named in verse 3, Hophni, Phinehas, uh, are not good men and did not carry on uh, 
even the faith of their father. And for their reason and others, uh, God brings judgment upon his house and uh, upon Israel at the time. So a lot is, is going on at this time. I think our story also will have many applications to uh, where we live in our country. Sometimes we kind of feel like every man is doing that, which right in his own eyes instead of the laws of the land. I spent uh, I spent last night talking to uh, bus drivers <laughs> who who uh, spend every day working with kids on school buses. So if you want eye openers to how how well kids are behaved today. <laughs> talk to the bus drivers. I spent earlier in this week talking to uh, uh, men in, in the college profession, in, even in a Bible college, trying to figure out how do, we, how do we find those good kids that have given their lives to the Lord and want to come and study for the ministry? How do we find those in the culture in which we live? In the midst of that, here's, uh, you know, in our major cities in this country, uh, uh, are, it seems like we're honoring those who are breaking the law, and those who are breaking the law are shooting at and killing uh, the law enforcement, and uh, things seem to be turned on their head that way, which they often, they often are. Uh, you know, Isaiah, in chapter 5, as he opened his prophecy, he said, "'Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil.'" "'That put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.'" And then says, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And so I think that we kind of ha may have uh, some of the same problems uh, that Israel had in those days. And that's why God's word, the Lord says, is profitable, all of it, for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction in righteousness. Well, the good news is that you have families uh, like uh, Samuel and uh, these kinds of people. And the good news in our day is that we have local churches like ours and many others. And we have Christian families uh, living in this country and in every country of the world and churches in every place of the world because this is the way God brings his light into darkness. Uh, local churches that honor the Lord and, and Christian families that honor the Lord are like islands of blessing you know, in an untoward generation, as Peter calls it. Uh, and we need those. We are places of retreat, places of rest, where people can come in and, and put down their defenses and put down their burdens. I hope your home is like that for you and your children and, and anyone else that comes into your home. Uh, our churches are like small colleges ourselves uh, because we want to learn and we want to find the truth of God's Word and apply it to our lives. Maybe we are like special ops military with the armor of God put on that go out into this world and hold the front lines of, of God's truth in this world. So we're important. Uh, our families are important. Our churches are important. And we find here in this story that Samuel and his family were important also. You can follow me in your bulletin a little ways. I, I have uh, three... Uh, names there of the three main characters in the first eight verses. We'll follow this up next week with a lesson on Hannah and how she asked God for a child, and God granted that. It would be a good message for Mother's Day, I think. But we have, we're going to look at three people. Elkanah, who is the father, of course, and the man, uh, as the story opens, 
and then we look at Penina, uh, one of his wives, maybe the first, I'm not sure, maybe the second, and then Hannah, the other wife. And I put kind of a short uh, description of how they appear in this story. Elkanah is a godly man, but uh, not real feeling toward, uh, especially toward Hannah. Penina is blessed. I don't mean to say blessed there. Don't read it like that. But she's blessed in many ways, and yet in, in her blessing, uh, she becomes vindictive uh, toward Hannah. And Hannah is broken. Uh, we see her weeping here at the end of the story, but she remains humble and humble before God, and God honors that and honors her prayer. Let's back up to Elkanah and look at him for a minute. He's a Levite, and the Levites from that tribe uh, had a lot of responsibility uh, with the tabernacle, later with the temple, and uh, he was part of the Kohathites, that part of, that took uh, care of a certain part of the temple. So he had his assignments, he had his time to be there. He is from Ramah. Now in verse 1, Ramah theme Zophim. Uh, I, when I told Don this is what I'm going to preach on, so you have to read these words, <laughs> I said, and you'll love verse 1. But, but the good news about that town is that in verse 19 of this same chapter, Ramah is the shortened version of that name. So for most of the times in the Old Testament, you have R-A-M-A-H, Ramah, which is how it appears in verse 19. So uh, that would have been better if they'd had it in verse 1, huh, Don? <laughs> you know, but uh, that's where he lived. This town was, uh, as one writer said, about 18 miles, as we would know it, from Shiloh, a walkable distance. Well, 18 miles, you know, uh, in the snow, uphill both ways, whatever. Uh, but 18 miles from Shiloh, and Shiloh is mentioned in verse 3 because that is where Joshua left the tabernacle. When they came into the land and began conquering the land, of course, they're bringing the, the tabernacle with them, the ark of God, and those kinds of things. So they uh, left it in a place called Shiloh, which by description anyway, I've never been to that site, but by description anyway, uh, it was, it's a beautiful, secluded spot, surrounded by hills and, and, and green, and uh, it would be a perfect place that when you come to the house of God, you can come as a retreat. You can come and, and to a beautiful place and kind of uh, spend your time there uh, in, in uh, uh, contemplation before God, which is what you were supposed to do at the tabernacle or at the temple. So that's where they're going. Uh, and uh, they will be there for uh, uh, perhaps three times out of the year. By the way, the, the book of Exodus uh, commanded the Israelites to be uh, at the tabernacle at least for the three main feasts. In Exodus 23, 14, it goes like this, Three times shalt thou keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread, or at the Passover, and then uh, verse 16, the feast of harvest, or Pentecost, and the first fruits of thy labor, which thou shalt sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, or the tabernacle. So spring, summer, and fall. They are supposed to make uh, a trip to the uh, tabernacle to do what they're supposed to do, offer their sacrifices and worship as they did. Uh, some have said that probably by this time things were falling apart enough 
that uh, if they went one time of the year, they probably felt good about it. So they probably didn't go every time uh, as everyone gets slack going to the Lord's house as often as they should, but uh, everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. So they came once uh, anyway. So this could have been any one of those three times out of the year uh, when they're coming to uh, Shiloh to, to worship there. We're also told uh, right away in the story that Elkanah had two wives, which to us kind of seems a little shocking uh, that he had two wives, but we also remember that other prominent people in the, in the Old Testament also uh, had more than one wife. Let me read you a few comments about that. Howard Voss, and these are all Old Testament scholars, Howard Voss said, even in his piety, Elkanah practiced polygamy. His home life reminds us of the fact that during the, this period of the judges, everyone did that which is right in his own eyes. David Payne said Elkanah was properly quite well off since he was able to maintain two wives. I thought, that's a, a cute statement there. Polygamy was not very common in Israel, he says, but was perfectly legal. In other words, there isn't a direct command against it. We can see from the unhappy situation that developed in this household why monogamy became the New Testament and the Christian standard. And then William John Dean years ago said, no one who studied the record of the first institution of marriage could doubt that man was intended to have but one wife, when you read Genesis, in other words. But infringements of the law of nature bring their own punishment. <laughs> and when you decide to step out of the way God had designed it, you're going to suffer the consequences, and many people did uh, in the Old Testament times as well. Now, we're told about Elkanah that he, uh, he loved Hannah, right? Uh, here in verses 4 and 5, let's read them. When the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina, his wife, to all her sons and her daughters, portions. Let me stop there and say what was happening there is when you went to the, to the tabernacle at one of these feast days, there were free will offerings that you could offer. In other words, you, you were free to do this. And in these kinds of offerings, you offered a lamb or a, a goat, an animal. And uh, as you did, the priests kept part of the animal, and then part of it came back to you. You would bring the animal, you would actually slit its throat and shed the blood, and then the priest would take the animal, burn the part for the sacrifice, the priests were allowed to eat part of that animal of, of some of the sacrifices, and then some of the times it came back to the people. So here at this feast, they made a free will offering, and the, the parts of the animal come back to them, and they're allowed to eat it, and that's what they do at the feast. So he's giving portions of that sacrificed animals, what is being said here, uh, uh, to uh, Penina and her children, but verse 5 says, unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. As a matter of fact, translated and otherwise, a double portion, literally. He gave twice as much to her as he did to Penina, even though she had at least four kids. Uh, and so he really loved Hannah. It says here he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute. So he loved her. 
and gave her more. You know, it reminds me of the story of when Joseph had gone to Egypt and had prospered in Egypt, and then his brethren came down and uh, brought Benjamin, who was the actual brother of Joseph, you know, and uh, they're all sitting around the table, and they don't know who Joseph is, and they all look at their plate. Everybody's got a little bit, but Benjamin has food stacked way up like this because that's his little brother uh, by his own mother, and so he, uh, he gives more portions to them. So kind of the same type of thing is happening here. And one other thing that has to be said about Elkanah is uh, that he had foot and mouth disease, and we see that in verse 8. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why are you crying? You know, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? And here shows he had foot and mouth disease. Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Now, guys, you just don't say things like this. <laughs> Because even though we don't have an answer, we know how she would answer this. And so if you want to find out the answer, next week on Mother's Day, don't get your wife any flowers, don't get her any candy, don't do anything special for Mother's Day, and then say to her, aren't I better to you than sons and grandkids? And see what answer you get. And that would be the answer that Hannah would have given here if, had it been recorded. So anyway, uh, I say unfeeling in my description of, of him, uh, probably more in the sense that he was a typical man, husband, and we've all done things like this where we, we need to comfort our wife and we just don't say the right thing or we don't do it in the right way. And it doesn't bring a whole lot of comfort to her to say something like this. Because if he was better to her than 10 sons, she wouldn't be crying in the first place, right? So that, what a question that is. Okay. You know, uh, I remember uh, being young. I, I was once. Uh, uh, and I've, I've seen a lot of, of young uh, men make this kind of problem. You know, when you're, when you're single, uh, maybe you're in school or, or, or whatever, you've got all kinds of time on your hands, right? Uh, you want to go out and play, play ball with the guys, you take off and you go out and play. You want to go fishing, you go fishing. You want to, you know, whatever you want to do. You want to stay up late, you stay up late. And so you're just kind of used to that life as a single guy in school or whatever, and then, you know, uh, this girl comes along, as I, you know, as I said before, uh, many a uh, guy has fallen in love with the dimple and made the mistake of marrying the whole girl. Well, you, you, so, so you, so all right, you marry this girl. And now all of a sudden, you, you know, you don't just keep taking off and going playing ball every Saturday, staying out with the boys, you know, uh, doing whatever, do you? You have to pay attention to what happened to you, you know. And uh, after a few tears and a few serious conversations, you start, you start to learn, you know. I've got to grow up here a little bit and act like a married guy instead of a single guy. So I've seen that happen a lot. You know what? If I applied that to the church, I'd say the same thing to church life. Because sometimes we uh, are so used to non-church life, we get saved, and uh, we don't know what this thing called church is. <laughs> 
And uh, we don't realize how much we need to be faithful and how much we need to fellowship with God's people and how much we need to do the things that are proper to do, from baptism, the Lord's Supper, to all of those kinds of things, uh, and attendance and singing and praying and uh, those kinds of things. And we learn late to our own harm because of some of those kinds of things. Anyway, Elkanah uh, uh, gives us a typical picture of, a, of the husband here. And will, of course, be the father of Samuel as well. Penina is a different story. I call her blessed, as I said, not blessed in the sense of some kind of a saint, but blessed. She, she has a lot to be thankful for, to be truthful. But she doesn't take it very well and doesn't uh, uh, show it very well. By the way, her name is Pearl. Penina in Hebrew means pearl. Hannah in Hebrew means grace. Uh, so Elkanah had two girls, uh, you know, that by their names, they were blessings to, to him, pearl and, and uh, grace. Pearl of great price, maybe, who knows, and grace. Well, she had uh, four kids at least, and I take that simply from, uh, from the statement in verse 4 where he gives portions to her and it says, to all her sons and daughters, and only from the fact that the word sons is in the plural and the word daughters is in the plural, I assume she had at least four kids and maybe more. So here she is, uh, the wife. We're not, we're not told whether she's the first wife or the second. Uh, you know, some commentators kind of think, well, it was common if, if your wife could not have children for you to marry again and have children that way since your first wife could not. Maybe that was the order. It's hard to say. But, uh, but all I'm saying is that it, it, here she is with a number of kids by Elkanah, and she ought to be happy about it. What's she complaining about? Why is she railing on Hannah uh, the, the way she is? So she is, she is blessed of God here, I think. Uh, you know, somebody made the point of, uh, you know, here, here she is with the kind of a spirit that, that is probably not good for her kids, not good for her husband, railing on somebody else's she doesn't need to be railing on. And why is it that sometimes it's those kind of people that prosper more than the sweet-spirited people like Hannah? And yet that's often just the way life is, isn't it? Uh, she was jealous of, of Elkanah's love for Hannah as well. I guess I can understand that, uh, you know. Praise the Lord, I've never had to experience, uh, you know, a, a home like that, and I wouldn't want to, but I imagine where the, if somebody has two wives, there's going to be jealousy, right? I mean, you know, it's human nature that that would happen. And she chides Hannah, read with me six and seven again, her adversary, she's called here. Why? Why, why is Hannah an adversary? She, what threat is she to you? Also provoked her sore, that is Penina to, to Hannah, made, to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And so as she did so year by year, <laughs> no, you know, even, and, and even at the feast day, even when you're bringing your gift to God, saying, thank you, Lord, for your blessings to me, and thank you for letting me serve you, and turn right around and just chide another believer uh, all that you can. So what's going on here? Well, you know, uh, when, when you think about the way Hannah is taking it here, if Penina 
had been kind to Hannah, maybe Samuel would never have been born. I mean, she may not have ever prayed this prayer. Might have been a contented wife with no children. Okay, that's what God has given me. That's fine. But because of this hardness, because of this hardship, God brings, uh, you know, a pearl out of the oyster. <laughs> he bring, brings a blessing here. And so sometimes, even though the wicked seem to prosper in times that it seems unfair, uh, the fact is that God can bring a blessing out of this and often does especially to those who are faithful during this kind of time. And again, I say even at the Lord's house, the hypocrisy of it is amazing. Uh, it's one thing at home. It's one thing somewhere else. But here she's bringing her gift. And here she is eating of that sacrificial gift that she's given to the Lord at the altar and before the priest. And even in all of that, she can't keep herself uh, from doing what she does toward Hannah. Uh, and so we just kind of see that uh, that part of her. But let me, let me also leave us with this thought about Penina. She didn't have to act like this. I, I hope you get the, that from me here. She's blessed. She has a lot to be thankful for. Why act like this? And yet it could be that sometimes we do this kind of thing also. You know, many people that, that uh, uh, find themselves in, in difficult positions, not through any fault of their own, uh, act better than this. Why act like this? We need to be careful because we may find ourselves in some kind of a place where uh, we, we could practice a sweet spirit, but it turns us into that. Uh, some of you who are widows or widowers, wasn't, it wasn't your choice before God to live alone in these years of your life and have the struggles that you have, but does it, does it have to make you bitter? No. Uh, do, you, do you have to have a spirit like Penina does? Some uh, young people are single, would like to be married, and yet that's God's plan, at least right now in their life. Does that have to make us bitter? Does that have to uh, drive us to, to be a person like this? And, and I know people who have found themselves divorced and didn't want to be. And yet they have to handle that. That can make you bitter. That can, that can turn you in a wrong way. Sometimes having things can, and sometimes having nothing can. You know, Having a lot can make us bitter and, and, uh, for some reason, and then having nothing, and we see other people that have things, and it, it creates that bitterness in us. So many things in our lives can do this same thing to us, and we can become a penina when we think we're righteous. You know, we, those people deserve it, and so I'm going to let them have it, kind of. And that's what she was doing. Uh, we need to be careful about that. As a matter of fact, do one thing. We have a minute to do this. All the way back to the book of James. You know, in chapter 3 of the book of James is that chapter about the tongue and how to use it. James Chapter 3, verse 9 says about the tongue, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who which are made after the similitude of God. So, uh, you know, we do this with our own mouth. But when he talks about wisdom, he says in verse 15 about a wrong kind of wisdom. Verse 14, If we have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, Glory not, lie not against the truth. 
This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. And where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. James is writing that to believers, you know. He's writing this to Christians in his own church. And he's saying, you know, uh, the kind of wisdom that brings this kind of confusion and evil working and sensuality and these kinds of things is not wisdom from above. But then he says, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above, notice these words, is first what? Pure. Everything starts with purity. Even in the Christian life, even though we are forgiven of our sins, if we're not walking with God in the way that we should, because notice what comes. See that word then? See first and then then? You don't jump right to being peaceable in your life. You don't get to peaceableness by jumping over purity. First pure, then peaceable. And when we read about someone like Penina, evidently, that's what she tried to do. And, and then you would supply the word then in between each word, right? First pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then easy to be entreated, then full of mercy and good fruit. Why is she not gentle? Because she's not peaceable. And why is she not peaceable? Because she's not pure. And up above, he had said, the, this wisdom descends from below, and that's our problem. Descends out of our own heart instead of out of God's. So James is very specific here about how to have peaceableness before God. And, and the only other place that that adverb, peaceable, uh, appears in the New Testament, if I remember right, is Hebrews 12, uh, where the chastising of God produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. So sometimes God has to take it out of us in such a way that he does. So let's remember uh, that progression that, that James tells us about here and realize that we could all be Peninas if we think that somehow we're going to uh, be gentle people and peaceable, but we're going to skip uh, the steps in between. First pure, then peaceable. You know, something that is absolutely pure is something that has no fault in it, no, no cracks in it, no uh, uh, anything like that that would, that would mar it. And that's why it's peaceable. I think, uh, you know, peace like a river, the Bible talks about. If you see a lake or a river that's absolutely like glass one day, there isn't a ripple on it because there's nothing blowing. Everything is still. And in your life, peaceableness comes out of purity. And then everything that is done in an environment like that is gentleness. Because where there's that purity and then that peaceableness everything is gentle at that point and we want that in our lives but to Penina there was always a storm on the water <laughs> always something stirring and she could never find that gentleness and this is why okay so here she is and uh, things that should have because she was blessed in, in ways too she should have been thankful she should have been a, a, a gentle kind of person, but she was not. Let's look at Hannah for a minute. Hannah then means grace, 
I say she was broken but humble. At this time in her life, uh, she was enduring quite a bit. First of all, though, she was very loved, and, and Elkanah did love her, we're told in verse, in verse 5. But we're also told in verse 5 and verse 6 that she was childless. She did not have a child. And it says at the end of verse 5, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And in verse 6, her adversary also provoked her sore to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Now, first of all, children are a blessing of the Lord, right? As, as uh, arrows in the hand of a, a strong man, you know, uh, they are a blessing of the Lord. But just because someone doesn't have children doesn't necessarily mean they're cursed of God either, that, that God is punishing them for some reason. Uh, you know, I don't even think it's wrong that, you know, we, maybe there's a physical reason why somebody doesn't have children and they have that corrected and now they have children. All right, fine. I don't think God punishes anybody for that. But it was, in, a, in a nation like Israel, it was certainly seen that if you did not have children, uh, you know, God was withholding blessing from you. And especially if you didn't have a male child, you didn't have a boy, God was withholding this from you. So, here she is uh, like that. You know, Rachel, that is, that is Jacob's wife that he really loved, had not given him children. And yet he had another wife and concubines, and they did. And it says in Genesis 31, Then Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children. She envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Well, at least Hannah wasn't doing that necessarily, but she was sad about it. And at least the perception was, what's wrong with you? You don't have children. Is God, have you done something that God doesn't like and God's withholding this from you? At least that's what they thought. But from what we know of Hannah and Penina, here was the sweet-spirited girl that you would, you know, you'd say, if God is blessing anybody, his blessing is upon Hannah, not upon, uh, you know, sour Penina, and yet she's the one with children. So they had kind of turned this whole thing on their head and brought it back, uh, you know, to Hannah, and Penina was just time after time uh, telling her how terrible a person she must be because she's not blessed of the Lord like I am. Look how I'm blessed, you know, God, God loves me evidently doesn't love you very much. And she did this year by year, verse 7. Uh, so he did, uh, as he did so year by year. And so this bitterness, Hannah's patience, we see it year after year. And by the way, let me emphasize Hannah's patience in this because uh, how long has it been now? How old were Penina's children? How long had, had she been around also with this blessing and it hasn't come her way year after year and each time to the temple and yet Hannah seems to be sweet about it. She's not striking back at Penina. She's just trying to defend herself, uh, so to speak. But finally she comes kind of to a breaking point at least. At least this year what we see is she just broke down and cried. <laughs> she just couldn't take it no more. And this anymore, excuse me. And this is where, uh, men, we sympathize with Elkanah. <laughs> so now he has two wives on his hands, and one of them's crying, you know. Now what is he going to do? 
but she gets through it. You know, someone that I was reading referenced these, this verse in Psalm 142, which I thought was, was great because this is when David was being pursued by his own children and by King Saul, and he was hiding in a cave, and here is the righteous man over here in a cave, and here is the unrighteous man sitting on the throne of, of Israel. And Psalm 142, 4 through 7 says this, I looked on my right hand, and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord, I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about. Thou shalt deal bountifully with me. And maybe that was the kind of prayer that Hannah was praying at this time uh, as her persecutors persecuted her. Let me make a few applications about Hannah. Number one, God's will has a purpose. And the circumstances that God brings into our lives aren't always in our control. But God has a purpose in all of this. Don't you think that God knew that he needed uh, a statesman like, uh, like Samuel? I mean, you'd had Samson, and he was a rough and tough kind of guy, but he sure wasn't much of a statesman. And as a matter of fact, he never did much of anything except for himself. And you have Eli, who was old and couldn't even control his own sons. Uh, God needed a, a judge, a statesman, to anoint the kings of Israel and the rest. I'm going to raise up a Samuel. How am I going to do it? I'm going to do it out of this scenario. I'm going to create this scenario so that I can have Samuel. And remember that God has a scenario for your life and, and has put you where you are for reasons. Maybe you'll not even know those reasons till you get to heaven, but God's will has a purpose. And praise him and thank him for the good things that you have and let him take care of the other things. Number two, prayer changes things. Part of the way God deals in his providence in the world uh, by changing circumstances, by changing things around us, is through our prayers. We talked about that in our Sunday school hour this morning. God hears our prayers because Jesus Christ, our mediator, stands at his right hand and he promised to hear our prayers and the Father promised to hear him. And it changes things. And so here's Hannah going to the Lord in prayer and sure enough, it's going to change things. Remember also that people are God's instruments for learning. And so you learn many of the lessons you learn in life from other people that come into your life, sometimes negative and sometimes positive. All of it is kind of learning, though. You can learn, you, you can have good, bad examples, <laughs> you know, and you should learn from them. And maybe Hannah was doing that. But God often brings lessons into our lives through other people, and those people have all kinds of pluses and minuses, uh, but, but God is teaching us. So look at what God's teaching you and what you're learning from it and repent where you need to repent and change where you need to change, but thank God for what he's doing in your life. Fourthly, another generation is going to learn 
from your perspective. It's another generation after you that you're going to affect. You may not affect your own generation that much, but your kids, grandkids, other generations in the church are going to learn from you. Samuel was an amazing boy, wasn't he? I mean, what, what we'll learn later about Samuel, uh, there is hardly uh, another man like him in the Old Testament. Such a prophet, such a statesman, such a, a man of God. And he comes out of this hard situation that Hannah finds herself in. If she could only see a little bit forward, if she could just look a little bit down the road and see what Samuel would do, she would say, here I am, Lord. Use me as you want. I'm, I'm, ready. I'm just a servant in your hands. But she can't see that, of course. And we can't either. But we need to remember that it's those who come after us that will change things, and we're going to affect them. I have no doubt that, that Hannah affected Samuel, even in his young little life, before he was uh, given to the temple uh, or the tabernacle, and, and uh, that had a great effect on him. And then, fifthly, be slow to take offense. Learn that from Hannah, too. Year by year, she took this offense from Penina. Year by year, she took it. Be slow to take offense. Because as soon as we take offense, we quit learning. And, you know, someone that won't take offense at things, you can't bother. <laughs> you can't hurt that person. They will keep on learning and keep on being what God wants them to be. So be slow to take offense. Because as soon as you do, uh, many of the lessons of life are over. So don't do that. Okay. Here we have Elkanah. Here we have Penina. Here we have Hannah, people that we should learn from. All of these things are, the Bible says, all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, right? That the man of God or woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for, all, for every good work. So, it's profitable. And then Paul said these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So, so we learn from these people. We live in a dark and tasteless world, folks. And what a dark and tasteless world needs is salt and light. <laughs> because it's tasteless and we're the salt of the earth. And it's dark and we're the light of the world. And you say, well, I'm just one grain of salt in a whole world full of Christian people and a whole history of Christian people. I'm one little grain of salt. That's right. You are. And all of us together make quite a difference. And you make quite a difference. Here's an illustration I saw this morning. I was just thinking through these things. You know, I get up early on Sunday morning and going to preach. and I'm thinking about things, going over my message, praying a little bit. And it's dark outside. And uh, my backyard looks over other backyards. And uh, the, the one neighbor across the way uh, does this every now and then. She uh, likes to take those little Christmas tree light-like things, you know, the little tiny bulbs, and string them all the way across her deck, down the railing, you know, across the eaves, down the railing, down the gate and everything. And I don't know how many little bulbs are on all the strings that she puts together, hundreds and hundreds, I'm sure. And she plugs them in, and every backyard in the neighborhood's lit up. <laughs> you know, so in the middle of the night, here's all, you know, uh, all of our backyards are lit up because uh, she likes to have those, line, those lights around her, her patio and, and deck and so forth. And I thought to myself, yeah, 
you may be just one little light. But, you know, sometimes in those strings of lights, if one little bulb goes out, what happens to the rest of them? They all go out. So every little bulb's important, not only to light up everything, but if one bulb goes out, the connection between the first ones and the ones that come after are lost. So I thought, you know, that's a, that's a good illustration of what we're talking about here. Hannah is just one small grain of salt, just one little tiny light bulb by itself, by herself, not going to affect a whole lot, but we're never by ourselves. We're always connected to God's people. We're always connected to God's history. People that, that went before us and gave us what we have, people that will come after us, we have to hand off to them and uh, never forget the, the influence that your life makes before and after. And be like Hannah, not by Penina. Uh, be, uh, Elkanah was a good man, thankful for him. We can identify with his faults uh, as easily too. But they were people of God. And God used them in great ways. I hope that you understand that. Stand with me now, if you will, as we uh, will stop there and we'll come back next week and we'll look at Hannah's prayer for her child as God uh, answers that prayer of hers. Let's bow our heads first and go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask him to speak to our hearts about things that we've heard this morning. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture uh, that we've seen often, we've read it often, but uh, we're always amazed. Uh, at how you apply your word to us and speak to our hearts. And so, Father, uh, among a, a group of people like this this morning, or whoever's listening to, to this message, surely there are discouragements. Surely, Father, there are people who feel like life is unfair. They feel like uh, other people have had better things, and even though they're walking with, with God, the things haven't come their way. And maybe there are some that uh, have been too quick to judge and too quick to criticize, and we see that of ourselves in this passage. And we see sometimes just the clumsiness of things that we say. So, Father, we know our own faults. We know our shortcomings. Help us, Father, because we also realize we're in this thing together. We're your people on this earth. We're salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. Help us then, Father, to be what we ought to be. Speak to our hearts Bring us back to you. Convict us in a way that we need to be convicted and help us always to praise you. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, of course, our invitations open. Our altar's here for you to pray at. I'm at the front if you need some help from God's word. You respond to our song and the way God is speaking to your heart as John comes and leads it.